Hi there, I'm Anna. And I'm Anton. And we will be the hosts of Behind the Scalpel for 2022. On the show, we hear from surgeons of all specialties and walks of life, delving into their career wielding the scalpel, as well as looking beyond the blade. What makes them tick? And what insight can they give to aspiring surgeons? In this first episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Christian Svindak, a neurosurgeon operating on the Gold Coast. Dr. Svindak, welcome to Behind the Scalpel. It's lovely to have you here. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Excited to be with you. Exciting to have you. So I might just start by asking you a bit more about your background, you know, where you trained, how you got to be where you are today. Cool. Well, where do I start? Hey, I'm, as you can tell, I'm an old man. I've got a gray beard by now, so I've been around a bit. Hey, I was born in South Africa. Um, and uh, my family is from Germany, uh, as you can tell by my surname. Um, so I speak German and Afrikaans and also a bit of English. Oh. Uh, and um, I grew up in a small country called Namibia, which was then Southwest Africa. Um, beautiful country. If you ever get to go there, have a look, please. It's pretty. Um, and my dad was a missionary doctor. So I grew up on a missionary station. And uh, often at night when uh, he had to operate or what, mum used to gas, so she gave the anesthesia, and dad used to operate, and I was on my little blanket in the in the corner of the theatre. So I, I got it. Family affair. I, yeah, I got it early on. So in a way, that's a bit unfair. You know, I always, I, I didn't know anything else in a way. Um, so I went to Union South Africa because that was just uh, the, the natural way for me to grace because my dad was a lecturer there. So again, you guys might often talk about where to go to Union, what's the best uni. Well, for me, it was the uni where dad was a lecturer and I got in for cheaper. That was mainly the reason. No, it was a good uni as well and I'm very grateful for that. Um, as we all know, things change in Africa a lot and that was a, it was a bad time in terms of giving other people opportunities and so on and a lot of violence and stuff. So we were very, um, as young students, very sort of, uh, oh, how do I say, you know, it was, it was hard with all the, the social injustice and, and, and what people experienced there and a lot of violence. So mm. good for training, but, you know, sad for, 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 for the culture. So after that I left, as most of us did, to go to England to earn some pounds and pay back my student loan. And, um, and then I got into neurosurgery, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, what was it like growing up there and training there in, in South Africa? Well, I mean, you know, I come from a privileged background, so I had all the privileges that go with that. Um, I thought our training was second to none. I don't think it's ever let me down wherever I've been in the world. So I'm very, very grateful for that. But I also guess that was done on the back of lots of other people. And um, things have changed a lot in South Africa. I've not really been back there in, in the system, so I don't know what it's like at the moment. Um, and we were sort of very classically British trained. So, you know, the first year was just basics like anatomy and not even anatomy, it was maths and botany and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. So we did our first year with the BSCs. And then our second year was just pure uh, physiology and anatomy. So I don't know if you guys still do this, but we still had our cadaver. We had a dissection twice a week and we started at the top and finished at the bottom. I guess it got a bit sloppier towards the end, as it does for most people. But we had classical anatomy uh, training. So I'm very grateful to have that because I don't know if that much of that is still done like that. You basically get a body that you can dissect. And that's very classical training. We also have six years of study in South Africa. So the sixth year was spent mostly clinical, half-day clinical and then lectures and stuff. I also was one of the first cohort in South Africa that did a thing called community service. So the government had introduced this as a 
trying to retain doctors in the in the community a little bit like a rural service so you were sent somewhere out into the bush to do a year there which was tough because we were treading on the gp's toes they didn't feel we should be there and stuff but it taught you uh quickly to stand on your own feet yeah so that was good as well so that was really really by stuff a lot of community medicine just running clinics with hypertension and kiddies running noses and stuff like that good stuff to learn i'm, I'm sure it's quite different the kind of pathologies you're seeing over there um especially you said your dad was a missionary your mom your whole family was mm. helping out in those kind of things mm. and i suppose growing up in the australian healthcare system training through that we're going to be seeing completely different things to a certain extent. Would you agree with that? And Absolutely. Kind of like what things are you seeing over there? Yeah, I mean, remember I was a student there. I was never a doctor and as, as a specialist there. But you see lots of gross pathology there, people with big fungating tumors. And, you know, mm. um, they, you would never see, well, not never, you should never say never, but, you know, you rarely see here. And then the other big thing was just very large amounts of interpersonal trauma. So, you know, if you worked as a junior and even as a student in the emergency department, we had these rows of people sitting there waiting to be sutured and you could just go there one evening and you could suture like 60 different people in one night and learn stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, uh, you know, experience, but also exposes you to a lot of misery as well, which is, you know, sad, sad, yeah. And so your decision then to move to the UK, what specifically prompted that? I think primarily it was a financial because we you could earn pounds and pay back your loans in africa so that was important and then you know opportunities were limited as africa at that time which was just at the transition uh, end of the 90s and you know uh the whole system was being rejigged so that's why i moved to the uk mm. which was also a great opportunity yeah so why specifically the uk why not somewhere else Oh, because you, as a South African trainee, you could work in the UK without any <laughs> questions asked. Makes sense. <laughs> so that's important, right? You know, again, as I said to you guys, always have these great ideas, what we're going to do, where we're going to go, and often it's just a reality of practically where can I go. So from my advice point of view, I always think, you know, you might have some great ideas, but it might take you places we didn't think of, and that's also cool. I went to Austria, I had a look around there, I went to Germany, and this, I found the system there so weird and uh, difficult to get into that I just basically gave up on that because it would have been years of retraining yeah well and then while you're in the uk you decided to embark on your neurosurgery career mm. uh, prompted that oh but i always wanted to do neurosurgery um <laughs> and again you know i i, I find it interesting you guys often ask me this everybody has got sort of a set of stuff that interests them that i find exciting and you sort of work out doing your, your medical training, probably this sort of fits me, this suits me. So I like biological systems. I was never great at maths. Engineering is not my thing. I like working with my hands. So it was always going to be something hands-on, so surgically. Um, I like a bit of excitement and danger and you know, stressful situations I like as well. So that's another thing to consider. And neurosurgery just tick that box. You know, it's often trauma. It's often life or death type stuff. It's also, also often very uh, fine, deliberate surgery. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that suits my personality. I like that. So you find your, find your groove. And then the neurosurgeons in our uni always wear Don Johnson shirts now. I thought that was cool. You know, they were the only ones that didn't wear ties. I, thought, <laughs> I don't want to wear a tie. So, yeah, can you see my floral shirt today? <laughs> still stick to the ethos. So you did your training over at the UK in neurosurgery. Mm. What then prompted you to move to the Gold Coast? 
Well, again, that was a lifestyle thing. Um, firstly, in the UK, um, getting a job there is difficult uh, and mm. you need to ask around and wait for your turn to come up. And um, uh, I find the UK weather-wise quite depressing, to be honest. I don't want to insult anybody, but uh, mind you, it's been raining here for the last two months. <laughs> but uh, generally, it's just a lifestyle issue as well. So having grown up in South Africa, being outside, having to do stuff you can do outside and enjoy the great outdoors, it's a good thing, you know, it's nice. That's great that you can mm. do that here as well. It's quite Absolutely. special. Mm. How, how do you find that transition? Did you have to retrain? or? Yeah, so that was tough. That was really tough because, you know, coming to Australia from the UK, you would think, oh, yeah, that'll be easy. Oh, boy, it's not easy. Mm. Um, the system is a little bit different. And um, you need to assess, you need to sit an assessment where they um, examine you basically and interview you and then decide what your, your penitence is going to be. So usually it's at least two years of practical supervised supervised working and then they'll decide what you need to do and in my case i don't know how that reflects on me but anyway uh, i was told i need to reset to find exams and they are structured quite a bit more different and i find those very challenging because there's nuances in how they ask you stuff and how they want you to present it uh, yeah it was tough we got got there in the end uh, yeah so another thing that i always thought you know um i thought as a medic you could go in the world and work wherever you like uh, and it's, it's you know, from a regulatory point of view, it's actually not that easy. So, mm. you know, just going to the U.S. quickly or going here um, is, is not necessarily all that easy. Or going to Germany or France, for example, even if you speak the language, you would not necessarily just be allowed to work there. Hoops to jump through. Mm. Which, obviously, you know, we want to make sure that the people who work with patients are suitably qualified and supervised. But you also, you know, you find it sometimes quite restrictive. Mm. Okay. And then I think as well, we noticed you did some research yep. while you're in the UK in mm. neuro-oncology. Would you like to tell us a bit more about that? Well, as you guys know, that part of your training also, um, it requires you to do research as part of your, your training. And uh, the old system in the UK was the real traditional British surgical training system. So you did your basic surgical training, you tried to become a registrar, and, and while you were in that sort of limbo land, you gathered some research and stuff as well. So I, I went through that whole circuit. Uh, and I like uh, things that go whiz and bang. So, so the stuff I really like to do in Edinburgh was um, I joined the um, MRI group there and they were working on protocols, how you can do functional MRIs. So you, now it's really common and we talk a lot about functional MRIs. So basically imaging brain areas that are related to a specific activity. And they were working on a protocol where they would um, do this um, uh, basically uh, functional MRI, what they call in real time. At that time, before that, you would need to do multiple runs of MRI and do very extensive mathematical modeling and statistical analysis on that, which took days and weeks to do. And they mm. were working on protocols how to do that in, well, wasn't strictly real time, but basically creating images that you could use within the day. Okay, so just so streamlining the process. Yeah, 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 lots of lots of maths and computers in the background, to be honest. <laughs> so, um, but I was involved just in the recruitment and stuff as well. So it's good. Yeah, it's a big collaborative type process for these big research projects. Yeah, it's not just one person. Hmm. And was there any continuity with that kind of research? Have you done any more in that? No, area? I've not done any further because it, it it was fairly a pure applied sciences that you that we did in a lab, and mm -hmm. you know, and, okay. and the guys who did it were basically you know they were scientists and they were uh, you know physics people and so on. Yeah. You need a big uh, big university behind that, right? Big labs. Mm. And what about now? What research are you doing at the moment? I'm not involved in, in any specific research in terms of my own thing. I don't find I have the personality really for the research, to be honest. And again, I guess you need to play to your strengths. 
Um, we have various projects going, for example, in, in the private hospital where I work, where we, we collect our data and see how people do because we want to see if we do certain procedures, how they respond. And uh, and that's part of, of the audit that we all have to do. But I don't have my own sort of research projects going at the moment. What do you see on a day-to-day basis? Anything neurosurgically, basically. So neurosurgery is, as people ask me, you know, I think it's a very exciting field because there's so much difference in it and so much variance. So one day I might be operating on a spine, the next day you might be doing a peripheral nerve sheath tumor, the next day you're in the brain, uh, and it's great and varied. I mean, I don't want to insult any colleagues and stuff, but, you know, if you just do prostates, that's a fairly limited area where you where you go about. They might be very offended. Uh, sorry, Charles. Um, but uh, for me, neurosurgery has just got so many different things you can do. So there's oncology, as you guys know. There's a lot of vascular stuff that gets done. There's functional work. There's a lot of degenerative stuff with the spines. There's trauma. Uh, so, you know, the field is huge. So it's it's, it's great. You don't know what you're going to get the next day. Is there, I guess, anything in particular that excites you? Yeah, I still love the tumor work. So, you know, operating on tumors is for me very exciting because you have this sort of um, uh, thing that you want to get out as much of the tumor as you safely can um, and, and that predicts possible the best outcome, but you don't want to harm the patient in the process of doing it. And that's just always that sort of being on the knife edge, which is really exciting and you know, challenging because it's very technical, some of it as well, you know learning those skills to do that. It's just take years to get the confidence. And I imagine you'd have to have extreme focus for that and for the patient too, quite daunting mm. going into that kind of operation. Well, they're usually asleep, right? <laughs> <laughs> you'd Hopefully. hope so. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, we could do even away cranial arteries and stuff like that. Um, but again, you need a big team around these things. Yeah, but it suits my personality. I like that sort of slow slog, sitting there for six hours and scratching at something. You know, other people really don't like that, and I respect that, you know. You've got, to, you've got to play to your strengths, yeah. And is there any kind of push, given how, you know, knife's edge it can be at times mm. to make things a bit more minimally invasive? Absolutely. I mean, that's what we're all doing in all specialties. And, mm. you know, my specialty, even in the 20 years that I've been into it, has changed significantly. So when I was a young trainee, we did a lot of aneurysmal stuff, and a lot of brain bleeds, and we used to open a lot of heads. And these days, these things get treated mostly by uh, radiologists. So they get treated endovascularly, and we don't tend to operate on those unless they are very specific cases, and then it gets complicated. So, you know, we don't get that throughput anymore. That's one example. And where do you see it going from now in terms of getting more and more minimally invasive? Oh, we're just going to try and make it for smaller holes, but, you know, an operation is still an operation. You need to get uh, you need to get where you need to get to. It's just developing more skills and being more confident in those, yeah. And what kind of surgeries are currently being pioneered in your field? Uh, I'm not quite sure there's anything specific in terms of new pathologies or anything like that. It's just techniques, how to do it safer and less invasive. Um I think the next big frontier for us is going to be basically in neuro-oncology. So as we develop our understanding of the uh, biology of these tumors and the neurobiology, and, and now that we do a lot of immunohistochemistry, so we look at at, 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 at these things on a cellular level, um, that is going to be the next step. But unfortunately, that's not going to be surgery, right? Um, we're going to treat these things by probably some form of targeted uh, immunomodulation type therapy. I mean, that would be my, my guess. I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not in the research, but that's how you're going to get them because you need to target every single cell, which surgery will just never do. Can't. It's macroscopic. It's never microscopic. Hmm.
So, I mean, I imagine operating on the nervous system is pretty technically challenging and um, obviously from your perspective, but then also for patients, it's quite a daunting prospect. Um, and obviously it can have such a massive effect on not only their day-to-day functioning, but their personality and their sense of self. I guess, how have you been able to cope with patient outcomes and um, I guess talking to patients so they're not so scared before a procedure? We spend a lot of time consenting our patients, um, possibly more than most other people because there's, there's so much on the line. So we try and meet them once or twice or even three times um, and to really sit them down and take them through what, what it means for them and why we're doing it. So firstly motivate why you need to do what you're going to do and then then comes to, and these are the risks and how those, those two weigh up with you and, and build a rapport with the patient. Um, we always look over our shoulder. I mean, there's no neurosurgeon who's not anxious about what they're doing and, and worried that uh, that they might be doing uh, or worried that they are doing it the right way in the best possible interest of the patient. We're very, we're very sort of critical of ourselves, um, and that's that's part of our craft group. You know, we we are like that as as people. Mm. Um, so building a rapport with your patient is very important. As you rightly say, you know, um, if you're not in the right mindset about something, then it's not going to work out well for you. Because many of the stuff we do also with chronic back pain and so on, there's very, um, very profound sort of psychosocial issues that go with that, as you guys know. You learn more at uni about that now than we ever did. But, you know, it's not just about back pain. It's about loss of function and loss of family structure and work and all that stuff, which I don't know if we are particularly well equipped to deal with that because, after all, I am a surgeon. But you need to keep that in mind. And I don't think our healthcare system is very well geared to specifically look at that. Things like work cover, for example, is not, you know, it's it's a, it's a, it's a hammer approach to a complex problem. Yeah. Mm. So really taking them through it, baby steps. As far as you can, yeah. 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 But I, I'm, I can't modify their work situation or their family situation to any significant extent, apart from pointing it out to them. And people being people, including us, you know, you just want a quick fix and the you know, just make this go away. And that's usually what people want, right? I mean, that's normal. Of course. And I guess how, how do you, if you have poor outcomes or anything like that, how do you cope with those? Having a good group around you of people you trust. And so we have weekly meetings, which is sort of the highlight of my week. We have an x-ray meeting every Friday morning where we discuss the x-rays of the week. By x-rays, I don't mean x-rays, I mean scans. And we discuss difficult clinical cases. And if something hasn't gone to plan, in fact, many of those cases we'll have discussed beforehand because you know this is something difficult coming up. And you ask your colleagues, hey, what would you guys do? What should I look out for? And then you report back and say, well, this is what happened or this didn't go to plan. And as you guys know, we have a M&M, so mortality mobility meeting once a month as well, where we discuss all the cases that have been flagged. And we say, you know, what happened here? Why did it happen? Could we have done something different? Um, and so you, you calibrate yourselves amongst your peer group. At least for me, that's important. It might not be important for other people. So that's why a, a peer group, uh, a group of like-minded people you work with is, is for me, is absolutely important. If you start standing on your own, you're alone. And if you start running into trouble, you have nobody you can share that with. So yeah, it's very important, important to have a good team around. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. Have you got any tips for medical students who are maybe aspiring surgeons in the future? Hey, have an open mind. Go and look at everything you can look at. Try everything. I was say, try everything once. I don't know. Try everything you want to try at. It's such a um, great field with so many opportunities, right? It's just 
there should be some there must be something for everybody you know as they say in scotland if you don't like whiskey you haven't tried enough whiskey <laughs> so if you don't find something in medicine that works for you you just haven't probably tried enough right i think i think that would be my idea just have an open mind and don't be too focused and just be friendly go to people ask them questions and be approachable you know that's basic human human skills and that will get you very far and you'll hit some roadblocks and you'll hit some problems you know try go around them find something else that would be my just basic life advice i guess you know mm. i guess that's interesting because you seem like you always set on the the neurosurgery yeah but you know there was many paths to get there and mm. you know, there was many detours on that path just to be very clear about that you know i started my uni in 1992 and i became a neurosurgeon in uh 2000 and let me do the maths yeah 2008 wow that's what it takes. <laughs> That's a few years in there. So uh, you need to be patient. Yeah. A lot of determination as well, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Just have your goal in mind. But also have a plan B. Yeah. 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 Very important. Do you have any tips for staying the track? Because I know a lot of people will try again and again. Mm. Yeah, that, that worries me because, you know, we have this conversation all the time about just hang in there, mate. You know, you'll get there in the end. But... For some people, some things just never work out or, you know, might not be the right thing for them. And that's a really tough one you've just asked me because we have trainees as well who really want to do stuff and you just think, I, I don't know if this is going to work out for you and how do you communicate that? You don't want to, you don't want to break somebody's hopes to get somewhere, but equally. So that's why I said have a plan B and look around, you know, have alternatives. Don't, don't be single-mindedly uh, fixed on something that, to the exclusion of other things. I guess that's what I would say, mm. you know. I know we have um, a lot of unaccredited spots, unaccredited registrar mm. positions in Australia now, especially mm. for surgical specialties. What mm. is your opinion on having those positions? Well, that's basically to fill that. Well, firstly, it, it fills the workforce need. So just be honest about that. We need, we need lots of hands on the wards and stuff. But it also creates a lot of opportunity for people to find the stride and try things out without having to be already in the training program because the training program is really it's you're fairly committed you're in it you need to get through it um and we just don't have enough spaces for everybody so that gives you the opportunity to work around look around try around and, and see what works for you and also hey you know building networks so you know meeting people who open doors for you you know, you might not think this might work for you and then you meet somebody who says I've got this research project or come to my theater I'll show you this thing great so th those are good opportunities. The neurosurgeon, I guess, personality, well, what yeah. would you say are traits of a neurosurgeon? If you're a listener out there who might be looking at neurosurgery as a potential career in the future, how would you know that you'd be a good fit for that, would you say? You need to be uh, very committed to what you do. It really takes a lot. And that's often where I have talks to students that do you really want to do this because it's mm. going to be 20 years until you get there. Um, we like to make uh, important, snap, crucial decisions in a short time. Or if you don't like that, it might not be a good one for you. Um, we like to have the fiddly, slow, complex, patient uh, type surgeries. Well, I'm speaking for myself, I should say. Um, and, you know, you need to have hand skills, uh, you know, and be technically, um, you know, you need to enjoy that challenge of can I do this better next time? Yeah. And then just a lot of patience because some of our operations in the difficult tumor cases, you'll be in theater, you know, six, eight, ten hours. I mean, that's not usual. 
and we tag team as well but you need to have that sort of personality for that for that stuff the other thing that 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 comes a lot to us is a lot of life and death stuff for us so on a weekend on call we are the ones that get wrong with somebody with a devastating head injury and stuff and you do make need to make these decisions is it is it in the patient's best interest to pursue this and if we do pursue it what are the risks that you exposing them to and is is it an outcome that you wish on yourself and other people so a lot of that decision making gets made by us and if you're not comfortable with that then uh, you know it's it, it's not a good place to be in it's a lot of grit somebody's got to make the decision you get used to it though i mean mm-hmm. you know it's part of your training yeah well thank you for that and thank you for thank you so much for joining us tonight on behind the scalpel we really appreciated your great insights about i guess studying medicine in, in a different country and training overseas and how that was coming here and I really personally liked all the, the insightful advice you gave for medical students that was a little bit different than what we usually hear from other people. Yeah, cool. So thank well, you very much for that. Glad to hear that. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Scalpel. See you next time either on our next episode or at one of Sergio's upcoming events.